morning everyone, thanks for coming back. Um, this is a series of lectures on Shakespeare plays which tries to take one question to think about a particular play from different angles. Today I'm going to be talking about All's Well That Ends Well. I'm going to suggest that this play has set its question already. Is All's Well That Ends Well? In some ways that's what this play is about. Um, and to do that I'm going to think about structure, tone and genre maybe to try and think about a more ethical context for thinking about this troubling comedy. Uh, like the other uh, 28 lectures so far on plays in this series, this is going to end up on iTunes U. So let's start with an outline of what happens in this play. Uh, Helen, or Helena, is the daughter of a doctor who has recently died. She's in love with her social superior, Bertram, the Count of Roussillon. His father has also just died, and that's made him a ward of the king. Bertram's mother, the Countess, is very keen that the pair should marry, but Bertram, crucially, is not. When Helen uses some of her dad's old prescriptions to cure the king's illness, she asks him for a reward to bestow Bertram to her as husband. Bertram is horrified he leaves court for the wars and leaves behind a letter saying he will not recognise his marriage to Helen until she can prove that she has the ring from his finger and is pregnant with his child. Helen is undeterred. Under cover of going to Santiago de Compostela on pilgrimage, she follows Bertram and learns that he is about to seduce Diana. She arranges with Diana's mother, the widow, that, unbeknownst to Bertram, she will substitute herself for him, for her, no, for Diana, that's right, in the bed trick. It would be a more interesting bed trick, perhaps, if she was going to substitute for Bertram, but she isn't. She's going to substitute for Diana. Diana uh, uh, arranges this assignation with Bertram, and uh, uh, um, Helen goes instead. In a complicated series of pop prop twists, plot twists which rely heavily on the prop of a ring, quite reminiscent of the end of Merchant of Venice, and on the misinformation uh, that Helen is dead, reminiscent of loads of them, <laughs> Bertram returns to court, his behaviour is revealed, he's under suspicion of having murdered Helen, but eventually she is brought in, she explains all the tricks, and Bertram has to accept that, since she has got his ring and says she is pregnant with his child, he must acknowledge her as his wife. So, celebrations all round. Or is it? That's my question for today. Is all's well that ends well? Let's just start by spending a little bit of time on this apparently proverbial phrase, all's well that ends well. The historian Maurice Tilly, in a reference work on proverbs that you can find online, lists a number of similar phrases. All is well and the man shall have his mare again. All is well and the old man dances. All is well when the mistress smiles. These seem to be, to me to be more straightforwardly linear in their import. We know it's all okay now because X has happened. So they're, they're, they're phrases which seem to sort of head forwards rather than, as in all's well that ends well, a kind of backwards causation. The status of prior events, that phrase suggests, is modified by something that comes later. We look back uh, at events which might have read one way 
because of what we know uh, happens at the end. The ending modifies what's gone before, smooths it out, reassures us that however uncertain uh, it might have seemed at the time, it was for the best, because although we didn't know it at the time, all those things were part of moving to a happy conclusion. So that kind of uh, modification of the earlier parts of the text by the end, particularly appropriate for plays as texts which exist in time. Most, most of our reading, most of our literary texts don't exist so much in time um, because they don't have, uh, they don't take up a certain amount of time. The, the amount of time that we encounter them uh, is elastic, uh, it's up to us. But plays, certainly in performance, have uh, a set amount of time. Uh, you can't uh, go back to earlier events, um, uh, but you can rethink them in your mind. Now, like many of Shakespeare's comic titles, the phrase all's well that ends well never quite emerges in its play. Uh, the same is true of um, uh, As You Like It, uh, pretty much true of Measure for Measure, uh, true, uh, as Pepys said crossly, about Twelfth Night. Uh, Pepys goes to see Twelfth Night, says it's a terrible play and nothing to do with Twelfth Night. Um, so comic titles tend not to uh, emerge exactly uh, in, the, in their phrase uh, in the play. But here in All's Well That Ends Well, there are a number of occasions as the play begins to wind up that we get an attempt or a version of the title. Helen herself reassures the widow, Diana's mother, that their plot will work out despite the hiccup that the king isn't there to receive their petition in Act 5. So Helen tells the widow, all's well that ends well yet, though time seems so adverse and means unfit. All's well that ends well yet, though time seems so adverse and means unfit. The second line there actually rather compromises the first. That half rhyme, I'm going to try and talk a little bit about rhyme, later in the lecture, but the half-rhyme yet unfit seems to emphasise a kind of faltering confidence even as she utters the sententiae. All's well that ends well yet is speculative rather than definitive. It can still all work out. Don't lose hope. The King's couplet that ends the play two <coughs> scenes later is hardly more secure. Again, we've got this modifier, yet. All yet seems well. We know that seems is a, uh, a real kind of red light word in Shakespeare. Seems uh, usually yeah, is not the same as is. All yet seems well, and if it ends so meet, the bitter past, more welcome is the sweet. All yet seems well, and if it ends so meet, the bitter past, more welcome is the sweet. So that combination of yet seems and if it, or yet seems well and if it ends so meet, is curiously inconclusive, tentative, unwilling to state quite categorically either that all is well or that the bitter past can be reconciled by current sweetness. But what the king says here, that a bitter past might be contrasted or juxtaposed with sweet conclusion, suggests that we might think about all's well in that genre of tragic comedy that I discussed briefly in relation to Cymbeline last week. Uh, bitterness uh, followed by sweetness is, in some ways, the definition of tragic comedy. I'm going to talk a bit more about that parallel in a minute. 
but still with references to all's well in the play. The epilogue, which follows the king's final speech, opens the phrase, the title phrase, up again. It's like an itch that the end of the play can't quite resist. The king's a beggar, now the way, sorry, the king's a beggar, now the play is done. All is well ended if this suit be one that you express content. All is well ended if this suit be one that you express content. So now the question of whether all's well and has ended well is explicitly handed over to the audience. They have to decide. All's well if you express consent. Well, at least that's the conceit. But it seems interesting to me that like other kinds of choice this play proposes, the possibility to refuse turns out to be illusory. Like the characters in the play, that's to say, we might think we have an option to express content or not, but actually we don't. If you don't express content by clapping, we'll never, in a kind of Beckettian existentialism, be able to escape the theatre. So references to all's well, but not exact quotations of it, proliferate as the plots come to their conclusion in the play, and thus, in certain ways, they enact its own premise. At the end of things, we review how the whole has been. Now, that might be particularly appropriate for comedy structured around this kind of narrative. Broadly speaking, a comedy in this period is something where things are better at the end than they were at the beginning. A tragedy is vice versa. As the playwright and apologist for theatre, Thomas Haywood put neatly in a tract on theatre dating from 1612, tragedies and comedies differ thus. In comedies... Turbulenta prima, tranquilla ultima. In tragedies, tranquilla prima, turbulenta ultima. Comedies, he translates, begin in trouble and end in peace. Tragedies begin in calms and end in tempest. So if comedies begin in trouble and end in peace, according to this logic, all's well that ends well is the very definition of comedy. So let's think for a few minutes about genre and how this might impact on our central question. Like Cymbeline that I talked about last week, All's Well was first published in 1623 in the first folio. As I'll discuss in a minute, its date of composition uh, is actually curiously flexible in Shakespearean criticism right now. Most plays we know broadly, or there's a consensus broadly about where they come. Uh, not so much this one, and I'll talk about that in a minute. It appears uh, among the comedies, and clearly there are loads of ways uh, in which it echoes uh, comedies which are more central to that genre. In being structured around female romantic desires, it links the comedy roles of Rosalind in As You Like It or Viola in Twelfth Night with our determined protagonist, Helen. By contrast, the weak Bertram is like earlier male lovers who waver in Two Gentlemen of Verona, that I'll be talking about in a couple of weeks, or in Midsummer Night's Dream. Broadly speaking, this play is associated with marriage and particularly fertility. Fertility tends to be implied uh, in, in, in sort of regular comedy rather than brought on stage. Uh, but pregnancy, fertility, is one of the, uh, obviously, the key uh, elements of the play's conclusion. And as with other comedies, it gives us a plot managed by human ingenuity 
rather than cosmic determination. So comedies tend to be about uh, how humans make their world or make their plots, uh, and that's, that's an agency which tends to be broadly denied to tragic characters. And we'll talk more about agency as we go forward. Like other of Shakespeare's comedies, All's Well dramatises the painful social necessity for young men in comic plots to separate themselves from male company and re-engineer their emotional lives around women. This is a particularly obvious theme of Much Ado About Nothing. The cost of getting together with Beatrice for Benedict is the instruction to kill his best friend, Claudia. But it's clear here in uh, All's Well that Ends Well um, and part of the military plot and the character Paroles, Paroles, who's Bertram's sidekick, is to offer male friendship <laughs> or a kind of uh, militarised bromance as the alternative to heterosexual marriage. The zany Paroles, with whom Bertram takes off uh, in escape from his marriage, uh, is probably the, the same low-born social status as the despised Helen. So that brings out the kind of parallel between them as different companions uh, for Bertram. So there are ways then in which All's Well uh, is quite clearly within the comedy genre. But on the other hand, the play flips a lot of expected tropes of comedy in some clever and unsettling ways. Uh, let's take for a moment the older generation. Shakespeare's comedies, as we know, are about young people making their own decisions. Plots either forcibly separate them from their parents, as with Rosalind or Viola, who are without the guidance and support of older confidants, or they make the parental figures ineffectual or irrelevant in some way or another. Uh, think of Leonardo, perhaps, the bemused father in Much Ado About Nothing, or Inogen, who's the missing mother from that, uh, from that play, a character who was written into the play uh, during drafting but gets lost um, uh, because there isn't a role for these uh, parental figures in that kind of comedy. So, um, comedies tend to construct uh, a present older generation as kind of blocking figures uh, who uh, have to be circumvented. Now, the blocking figure is particularly common in plays by other Renaissance dramatists, where the mean father or uncle who won't let the young couple be together is a stock figure. You might think about Middleton's Chase Made in Cheapside, for instance. To some extent, Baptista who is the father to Catherine and Bianca, and Vincentio, the father to Lucentio, in Tenny of the Shrew, fall into this type. Tenny of the Shrew is partly about um, the struggle between parents and children about how they're going to behave. More clearly, the dead father who sets up the casket test for Portia's suitors in The Merchant of Venice, or even Shylock himself locking up his daughter Jessica to prevent her going off with Christian boys. These are classic uh, blocking figures. Now, in Oswald that ends well, something slightly different is afoot. Here, the parental figures, including the king, the countess of Roussillon, the widow, who is Diana's mother, all neglect their traditional comic roles and show themselves to be great supporters of the couple. So the older generation are not the block. In fact, they're the most enthusiastic supporters, particularly of Helen. They all want her <coughs> to marry Bertram. I want to say two things about this. Firstly, if we recognise all's well 
that's a play that's more roundly concerned about the interaction between the older and the younger generation <coughs> and the sense of a generation gap, we might want to put it with some plays that have uh, been traditionally thought to come later in Shakespeare's career uh, with King Lear and with the late plays or romances with which Shakespeare finishes his writing career with Cymbeline, as we talked about last week, or with Winter's Tale or The Tempest. In fact, recent criticism has begun to question whether All's Well, which has no records of early performance and no print edition before 1623, might not actually be better dated to join that late group of compromised fairy tales that turn on the question of women's virtue and therefore be written more like around 1678 rather than 1634. So 1634 was the problem play designation uh, as uh, um, generated at the end of the 19th century, a little group of plays from the early 17th century. Uh, uh, initially, these were Hamlet, Troilus and Cressida, Measure for Measure, and All's Well. Uh, we can see a way of thinking about the play as, as one of those uh, problem plays, um, but with no absolute reason to date the play in that cluster. Um, this sense of the play being about generations uh, might be a, one reason to put it uh, a bit later, to put it with the romances. So you might think that redating All's Well that Ends Well is the most arcane and pointless scholarly activity, but it does help us to think uh, that um, plays can be limited by the groups with which we choose uh, to associate them. Uh, putting anything into context with anything else obviously flags up certain kinds of similarities. And that problem play category with which All's Well has tended to be grouped may have limited the range of critical responses we might make. So All's Well that Ends Well and Measure for Measure is a slightly cliched pairing, I think. All's Well that Ends Well and Pericles or Cymbeline or Winter's Tale might be a more interesting one. One, one point then about the role of the parent figures is, is generic. It helps us to see how the company we make plays keep shapes what we're able to say about them. The other point I'd want to make about the parents is broadly characterological. It's about uh, the construction of character. Here, the romantic couple are not bound to each other against a hostile environment. The environment is actually rather benign, despite the fact that there's a war, but we never seem to see any uh, uh, much, much war going on. The editor of the Arden, uh, latest Arden, Much Ado About Nothing, Claire McGacken, makes a really smart remark that Beatrice and Benedict, she says, in Much Ado About Nothing, are the first Shakespearean comic couple who can't get together for psychological reasons rather than for circumstantial or environmental ones. So she says, it's not that the world is keeping them apart in some way, or that one of them happens uh, to be dressed as a boy, as you are, and can't be recognised. You know, there aren't these kind of factors going on. What happens is that they've got a kind of psychological block about being together. We could build on that to say that Helen and Bertram have a similar impediment. What's stopping them from being together is not their environment, which is actually uh, quite uh, positive about it. Uh, the king himself has said they should marry, so the social environment is entirely pro their marriage. Um, but what's stopping them uh, is something to do with character. 
We might develop that by saying that Helen and Bertram are characters who really should not get together. They're central romantic characters who find themselves in a play that looks like a comedy, but who really should not go forward into that happy ending, coupledom factory that is Shakespearean romantic comedy. They're an anti-comic couple trapped in a comedy. The brilliant structuralist, mythographer, critic, Northrop Fry tells us that, quote, the action of comedy is intensely Freudian in shape. The erotic pleasure principle explodes under the social anxiety sitting on top of it and blows them sky high. In comedy, we see a victory of the pleasure principle that Freud warns us not to look for in ordinary life. It's a great idea that comedy is the ultimate kind of wish fulfillment. Uh, this is where we get our desires satisfied uh, in ways which we can't hope for in real life. But perhaps all's well that ends well is Freudian in a different and darker way. Perhaps uh, that would give its title a more cautionary import, be careful what you wish for. All could not be well, I think, if Helena and Bertram got together, because Bertram really does not want to marry Helen. Uh, it's quite hard, actually, in a kind of modern environment to think how much um, credence we should give to that. I mean, of course we should, uh, even though the reasons he doesn't want to marry her are uh, broadly kind of snobbery. He doesn't think she's a suitable uh, class uh, position for him. But he keeps saying he doesn't want to marry her. Uh, and in some ways, this is a play, interestingly, I think, about consent, about the difficulty of consent. Um, I know her well, he says of Helen, to the king. She had her breeding at my father's charge, a poor physician's daughter, my wife. Uh, he vows, I cannot love her, nor will strive to do it. I cannot love her, nor will strive to do it. So it's a very queasy comedy that makes that happen, a kind of pincer movement of royal fiat, and female ingenuity that entraps Bertram. And although we might want to praise Helen's stubborn pursuit of her own desires, it's hard to know quite what to do with the authenticity of Bertram's own feelings. As I thought about this, I wondered if Bertram has become slightly feminised by the plot here. It's the position of women in Shakespeare's comedies often to say they don't want to get married. Beatrice, who we've already heard about, Catherine and the Ten of the Shrew, Olivia... Uh, in uh, Twelfth Night. And what men do is break down or circumvent their opposition or uh, demonstrate that it's in some way um, uh, uh, kind of bu buttoned up or frigid, uh, emotionally frigid, that it, needs to be, that it needs to be broken down. Mostly those women are against marriage in general. That might be thought to be fair game for persuasive suitors, but rather than set against a specific individual, as Bertram is. So Bertram's not saying he doesn't want to get married. He's saying he does not want to marry Helen. Now, all Shakespearean comedy demands, of course, that we suspend, to some extent, our misgivings or incredulity about the central romantic couples. If we're always going to be saying, well, will they really get on in the future, we're probably going to kind of miss the point of the play. Um, when Sebastian quickly accepts Olivia's marriage proposal in Twelfth Night, although he's never seen her before, uh, when Orlando, in his wrestling kit, uh, is so... Uh, all-conquering that uh, Rosalind falls immediately in love with him. Uh, I'm not sure Shakespeare uh, means to be realistic, except perhaps to say that the reasons people get together are often, happily, quite mysterious to other people, whether the course of their relationship takes two theatrical minutes or many real years of dating. 
And while we may be encouraged to question the precise nature of Orsino's attraction to Viola in her boy's clothing, or to worry a bit about Bassanio, the bounty hunter, off to Belmonte Merchant of Venice, there are other elements of the plays which allow us to take pleasure in the fiction of these structuring and interrupted courtships. So comedy tends broadly to make us feel what we want what the characters want, and when they get what they want at the end, we feel satisfied with our fictional experience. Now, it's precisely this that almost all readers of All's Well have had difficulty with. And criticism, as you, if you look through the history, 20th century or earlier history of criticism of All's Well, criticism has been pretty even-handed in finding uh, both parties uh, problematic. Coleridge called Helen Shakespeare's loveliest character, uh, but she's also been called a keen and unswerving huntress of man. I'm not sure whether that's supposed to be a good thing or not, or possibly not, not so much. Uh, Dr. Johnson felt that Bertram was a coward and a profligate. Uh, other critics have felt he should be pitied for being trapped in Helen's implacable pursuit. Certainly, as I've suggested, a modern political vocabulary of consent could be interestingly and provocatively applied to this play, particularly in a way in the difficult encounter between Bertram and Diana. Uh, it looks as if Diana, who's been kind of pimped really to Bertram, is the, is the figure who doesn't have uh, much agency in this situation, but there's a way in which Bertram also uh, is trapped um, by other people's narratives. If Helen were a man stalking a woman who'd told him to get off, how would we think about the play's ending? But nor does Bertram himself garner audience sympathy. At best, he is callow, like much ado as Claudio, but at worst, he is deeply selfish, incapable of empathy, and resistant to the impulse towards re-education of men that's at the heart of Shakespearean comedy. Lots of Shakespearean comedies are showing men how to behave, how to behave better than they have done. Bertram never has a speech of affirmation and self-reflection which suggests he has reformed. He never shows that he has repented or accepted what's been placed on him. And as so often, a comparison with Shakespeare's source is useful here. Shakespeare takes the story of All's Well from Boccaccio's Decameron. It's the same source he uses for the play I discussed last week, Cymbeline. Uh, and that actually, you know, uh, by the by, might be a reason to think of them as being composed uh, rather more closely together in time than we've conventionally done. This is the only time Shakespeare uses Boccaccio in his writing. You can look up sources, just as a reminder, in Geoffrey Bullock's great Bible of Shakespeare's reading, Narrative and Dramatic Sources of Shakespeare. Shakespeare probably accesses Boccaccio's Italian via the translation into English of William Painter. The story in Painter is identical, but as we'll see, the tone of the ending is quite different. According to Painter, when presented with uh, a, a Helen who can answer all his preconditions, <coughs> Bertram graciously bends himself to the situation. He agrees, quote, to accept her forever as his lawful wife, folding her in his arms and sweetly kissing her diverse times together. He bade her welcome to him as his virtuous, loyal, and most loving wife, and so forever after he would acknowledge her. From that time forth, Painter concludes, he loved and honoured her as his dear spouse and wife. 
So Bertram agrees to accept her forever as his lawful wife, sweetly kissing her diverse times together. I've said before in these lectures that actually sometimes the most useful thing about looking at Shakespeare's sources is what he leaves out. Because the existence of something in the source which Shakespeare chooses not to use establishes it as a possibility distinctly rejected rather than as something which was never part of the picture in the first place. This is a really good example, I think. Painter's final paragraph that I've just read works hard to confirm that the union of his Helen and Bertram is, for all its twisted courtship, happy and that it will continue to be so into the future. All's well that ends well in the source, quite distinctly. But it's a very different ending from Shakespeare's. In the play, far from folding Helen into his, ar his arms or sweetly kissing her, Bertram accepts just about that he's been outwitted. He acknowledges his wife, but with another significant caveat. This is something to think about in the light of those modified all's well that ends well phrases that I was talking about a few minutes ago. If she, my liege, can make me know this clearly, I'll love her dearly, ever, ever dearly. If, if is the weasel word here. Now, how an actor <coughs> delivers the repetitions of that line, which is Bertram's last speech in the play, seems right with possibility. It would be a great place to do an investigation of the performance tradition. But if we were to take it to our central question, is all's well that ends well, we'd have to raise a question mark. <coughs> Bertram puts his acceptance of Helen as, as his wife into some post-play future when he has heard the evidence to back up her, her audacious claim that, he's pregnant, that she's pregnant with his child. One way of reading that might be to say it's not all over yet. Ends, then, becomes the term that's problematic, as well as well. So if Bertram is a problematic and uncommitted groom, Helen, too, is a difficult prospect. She takes that active female comic protagonist we've seen elsewhere and runs with it. And she also defies expectations from her very first lines in the play. She enters all's well, sorrowful. All the characters in the opening scene are wearing black, according to the stage direction. This makes a striking tableau of mourning and gives a kind of atmosphere of death and mourning, um, particularly for Bertram's father, but also uh, for Helen's, uh, that pervades the whole play. But as soon as Helen is alone on stage, <coughs> she confesses like a kind of photo-negative Hamlet, that she's actually not sad about her father at all, but about her unrequited love for Bertram. So the question marks over Helen's likability in this play are question marks uh, about her, her, our engagement with her quest and our engagement with her character. If we don't really like her, is her getting what she wants the equivalent of a happy ending? To return to the source for a minute, in Painter's version of Boccaccio, the heroine is repeatedly praised for her cleverness, and her husband recognises her strength of character and ingenuity in the end of the story. What Painter seems to bring out as the kind of moral of his version of All's Well That Ends Well is that people can change their lives by their own energies. They don't need to bow to the inevitable. Now, if that's the moral that Shakespeare inherited, he, it and its heroine underwent some tarnishing in his hands. One thing we could see Shakespeare doing here is taking a fairy tale and systematically darkening it. Probably the play's most successful modern performance, 
uh, that at the National Theatre in 2009, directed by Marianne Elliott. Uh, this production stressed the play as a fairy tale with a set out of an illustrated grim uh, part children's book, part gothic folk tale, ramparts, wolves, magic lanterns, silhouettes, and an indeterminate ending with Helen and Bertram caught momentarily in a freeze frame wedding photograph. <coughs> the, the wise uh, cynic in the play, Le Few, um, has a remark which is quite helpful for thinking about um, this play's curious balance between uh, romance and uh, pragmatism, or between fairy tale and modernity. Uh, they say miracles are past, says Le Few, and we have our philosophical persons to make modern and familiar things supernatural and causeless. It's a great line, actually, for thinking about uh, the way ideas are changing during this period. They say miracles are past, the miracles that are associated with Catholicism, uh, with all kinds of different views of the world. We have our philosophical persons to make modern and familiar things supernatural and causeless. It's a great time for thinking about um, the supernatural uh, <coughs> in Macbeth or something. Now, it's typical of this play's knowingness that it deploys an idealised folkloric structure in the shrewd service of human desires and selfishness. Helen's magic healing of the king partakes of a fantasy world, the idea of a kind of magical healing. But it's a miracle she exploits for her own agenda. Just as when she goes on pilgrimage, she's got distinctly earthly, earthly not to say sexual, rather than religious aims. And this doctrine of pragmatism, Helen will do what it takes to get what she wants, brings the notion of all's well that ends well into a more ethical sphere. I want to look at that by thinking about Helen's soliloquy at the end of Act 1, Scene 1. Left on stage for a moment, Helen speaks directly of her ambitions. Our remedies often ourselves do lie which we ascribe to heaven. The fated sky gives us free scope, only doth backward pull our slow designs when we ourselves are dull. What power is it which mounts my love so high that makes me see and cannot feed mine eye? The mightiest space in fortune nature brings to join like likes and kiss like native things. Impossible be strange attempts to those that weigh their pains in sense and do suppose what hath been cannot be. Who ever strove to show her, to show her merit that did miss her love? The king's disease... My project may deceive me, but my intents are fixed and will not leave me. Our remedies often ourselves do lie, which we ascribe to heaven. It's a really striking speech. I think Helen is the only woman in Shakespeare who speaks like this. Uh, it's a soliloquy. She's alone on stage. So it affiliates her with ambivalent characters in Shakespeare's plays, crucially who have something to hide. We might think of Hamlet at a similar point in his play, of Iago at a similar point in Othello, each stays behind early in the play to tell us of a separateness, an implacable separateness they feel from the community in which they find themselves, and of a secret interior which is at odds with the public face they feel obliged to promote. Now we tend to think of the soliloquy as the definitive privileged mode of the tragic hero, but I think that's actually really not correct. 
In Shakespeare, soliloquies more often belong to those who cannot reconcile inner and outer, a paradox that is often villainous. Okay, it's only later, really, that I think it's come to seem uh, like the condition of being a person, to have a secret life that you really want to try and voice. Uh, I think in Shakespeare, more often, this is a, this is a problem, uh, this, is, this is something which bad people uh, encounter. We might think of, again of Iago, I am not what I am. Now, these troubling associations are amplified in Helen's speech, where she echoes the radical agency of Iago, or King Lear's Edmund, or Cassius, urging Brutus to the assassination of Caesar. There are ways in which this unsuperstitious autonomy is admirable, as it is in these other figures too. But she does share it. She shares this credo of self-sufficiency with some other characters who are not entirely happy role models for a comic female character. If I were broadly to try to simplify a large philosophical shift that is beginning during the career of Shakespeare and will get its English codification in the work of Thomas Hobbes in the mid-17th century, it will be the idea of agency, the motor of events, shifting from the providential to the human, shifting from an idea that things happen because of the will of God to an understanding that things happen because of the behaviour of individuals. This shift has profound consequences for narratives of causation, such as the writing of history. <coughs> it's a question which is really pressing in Shakespeare's history plays, but also for morality and ethics and for our understanding of the human operating in the world. It's a shift which I think Shakespeare's really fascinated in because he keeps giving us characters who believe that the world uh, is up for human manipulation uh, against characters who think that you ought to stay in your place or submit yourself to higher authorities. Um, it's a shift that, then which Shakespeare's fascinated with but which he recognises, I think, as dangerous. He associates it with men whose will to power places them beyond conventional systems of morality. They're dangerous figures, Iago, Edmund, uh, Cassius. So perhaps in this context, our central question, all's well that ends well, seems less the conclusion of a comic fable and more the amorality of the Renaissance pragmatist Machiavelli. Machiavelli advocated ruthless self-interest at the heart of power politics. We associate the phrase, the end justifies the means, which we might see as a gloss of all's well that ends well, with Machiavelli. Um, uh, philosophers would probably say it comes from Ovid. Um, but it's a pragmatic theory of human interaction which has a lot of traction in early 17th century England. <coughs> Manuscript translations of Machiavelli and illicit print editions, persuasive figures like the stage Machiavel Barabbas in Marlowe's Jew of Malta, all attest to the reach of this new philosophy, the philosophy of human self-interest um, guiding events. Uh, and this is all in counter to a broadly providentialist thrust of English historiography. So Helen's own pragmatism gives the play a distinctly modern cast, that's to say, set off by the play's engagement with folkloric motifs. So, All's Well That Ends Well uh, seems like a comedy. Uh, it looks like a comedy. Um, perhaps it doesn't quite quack like a comedy. Uh, and maybe that, too, could be a good gloss for its title, uh, All's Well That Ends Well. 
part of what seems hollow to me about this phrase and the implications of all's well that ends well is its repetition. Not only is an approximation of this phrase repeated, as we've already seen, but it is itself a repetitive phrase, a kind of self-identical, uh, a, a self or identical rhyme that chimes or jars rather than connects and builds, rhyming things with, with themselves, uh, is a very particular kind of rather pathetic uh, use of rhyme. I want to think about that to think about one of uh, Allswell's formal properties, the prominence of rhyme. It's a notable and very audible feature of Allswell that it makes more frequent use of rhyme than most of Shakespeare's later plays. You know, of course, that the blank in blank verse means unrhyming. And although rhyming is relatively common in Shakespeare's early plays, in which is the second, perhaps, on Midsummer Night's Dream, by later in his career, we tend to praise him for a more flexible form of unrhymed verse that uses enjambement, running over the line end, to approach a more varied poetic pattern. Uh, if you think of someone like Russ MacDonald writing on uh, the language of uh, the late plays, for instance. One striking example of rhyme in the play is in Helen's interview with the sick king in Act Two. Um, I'll just read this to you. It's not particularly important apart from the rhyme words. Thou thoughts to help me, and such thanks I give as one near death to those that wish him live. But what at full I know, thou knowst no part. I know more my peril, thou no art. That's the king. This is Helen. What I can do, can do no heart to try, since you set up your rest against remedy. He that of greatest works is finisher, oft does them by the weakest minister. So holy written babes have judgment shown when judges have been babes. Great floods have flown from simple <coughs> sources, and great seas have dried when miracles have by the greats been denied. It's striking, this use of rhyme, because it juxtaposes formal courtesy and artificiality with a more cynical uh, and uh, material play world. In Shakespeare's plays, as more widely in Renaissance culture, the trope of the sick king is usually, in part, a political one. Sick kings have sick kingdoms. Uh, it's not always clear uh, in which direction the cause and effect goes, whether the king is sick because the kingdom is sick or vice versa. There's some kind of analogy between this. It's a political thing to be a sick king. And the king in All's Well has a really demeaning fatal illness, a fistula. A fistula is an abscess or uh, a tunnel made from a bodily organ out, outwards through the outside of the skin. Most frequently in early modern medicine, a fistula is an anal fistula, fistula in Arno. There were special chairs made in the Renaissance with holes cut into the seat to alleviate the terrible pain of this condition. What I'm saying about it is it's not a very fairy tale illness uh, to have an anal fistula. It's a really kind of embarrassing, demeaning, uh, literally low uh, kind of illness. Uh, symbolically, its associations are all uh, rather negative. So this decorous rhyming scheme is set against the rather shameful, secret or dirty medical reality of the king's literal and metaphorical condition. So rhyme here becomes a microcosm of the formal structures with which the play surrounds and decorates 
a less ordered reality. It's part of a kind of tonal uncertainty, an early modern theatrical version of what in the modern cinema we would call soundtrack dissonance. Uh, Vera Lynn's We'll Meet Again uh, in Kubrick's uh, Dr. Strangelove or Singing in the Rain in Clockwork Orange. If you don't know these examples, they were music with light or positive or cheerful associations is juxtaposed with um, psychotic violence or nuclear Armageddon or some kind of visual uh, which is quite different. So artificiality and cynicism, make-believe and, and pragmatism are held together in the way that rhyme manages the surface of the play, a kind of dissonance, that's to say, between the aural or, or soundtrack characteristics of the play uh, and its content or subject matter. One last point, and this is the last point I'm going to make in the lecture, uh, uh, is to do with rhyme and relating it to authorship. You'll know now that the old idea of Shakespeare as a proto-romantic poetic genius, working alone to pen perfect plays, and perhaps rather resenting meddling players who changed or mangled this perfection, that's all gone. Not only do we now celebrate and analyse Shakespeare as a theatrical collaborator, working with theatrical spaces, actors and audiences to create commercially successful entertainment, we increasingly now think that he was involved like most of those in the theatre industry, in collaborative writing, collaborative writing. These collaborations took different forms, from working together with Middleton on Timon of Athens, or Fletcher on Two Noble Kinsmen. I talk quite a lot about collaboration in the lecture on Timon. Perhaps picking up an unfinished or started play by someone else, uh, Titus Andronicus maybe, or Pericles, Maybe working in a team, as on the Henry VI plays, which we now think have Nash and Marlowe uh, in the writing team. Providing speeches or scenes for plays such as the Book of Thomas More, or the reboot of Kid's Spanish Tragedy, or the domestic tragedy Arden of Faversham. Recent scholarship has uncovered lots of different forms of collaboration, that's to say. And the most recent collected edition, the new Oxford Shakespeare, published in 2016, and its accompanying authorship companion is the best place to look. One of their suggestions is that a group of plays that were originally by Shakespeare, but probably overwritten for revivals before 1623 by Thomas Middleton includes All's Well That Ends Well. Okay, so there are three plays, Macbeth, Measure for Measure, and All's Well That Ends Well, that the New Oxford Shakespeare suggests have some element of Middleton in them. There are lots of markers of Middleton, lots of ways and ticks and uh, clues to Middleton's writing uh, that I won't go into now. The one I just would mention is rhyme. Middleton rhymes uh, in his writing from this period a lot more than Shakespeare does. The rhyme may be a sign uh, of Middleton's uh, authorship. But the Middleton connection could also give us a grittier play all round. Shakespeare's particular brand of romantic comedy <coughs> those young people conquering obstacles in Mediterranean or rural contexts is very different from Middleton's urban economies of sex, self-interest and class ambition. Middleton's endings are usually compromises rather than fairy tales. <coughs> Reading All's Well as a partly Middletonian play with a Middletonian view of the world might help us bring out some of its more cynical aspects rather than sentimentalising it, as earlier criticism tended to do. It also perhaps places ends in a different and more writerly context. When does this play end? 
not if we believe the editors of the New Oxford Shakespeare, when Shakespeare has finished, but when Middleton has. So, putting the play's own question all's well that ends well at the centre of our investigation helps us to think about genre, about tone, about politics, and about competing philosophies of human agency. As with many questions in this series of lectures, we can see all's well that ends well as a question the play asks rather than answers, part of that thoroughgoing interrogative critique that always makes us think Shakespeare was there for us. Next week, I'm going to think about place, location, and specificity in Shakespeare by asking about Mary Wives of Windsor. Why Windsor? Do come back then. Thank you. Thank you.